0: Hello, and welcome to the um, March 2010 um, lecture for the Iowa Geriatric Education Center Geriatric Lecture Series. Uh, My name is Paul Mulhausen. I'm a physician at uh, the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. I work at the VA Medical Center, and I'm a clinical faculty at the uh, Carver College of Medicine. I'm here today to speak with you um, about the topic of screening for dementia. Um, before I begin, I'd like to um, just point out that I don't have any financial interests or relationships with any manufacturers or products or providers of services that I might be discussing in my uh, presentation. Um, We really aren't going to be discussing any particular pharmaceuticals or medical procedures um, that would be um, under investigation or um, subject to approval by um, the FDA. At the completion of today's um, conversation, I'd like to um, have you be able to Um, reach these objectives. So I'd like you to be able to describe reasons to screen elderly people for dementia and yet understand the arguments against routine screening for dementia because there is not consensus yet on the role for true screening for dementia in primary care settings. I'd like you to recognize the many choices that you have in in strategies to screen for dementia. And ultimately, um, I'd like you to be able to use at least uh, one dementia screening tool in in your own clinical practice. Uh, There are advantages and disadvantages to some of those commonly encountered screening tools. And I'd also like you to be able to uh, describe what the advantages and disadvantages are. So although I'll be um, sharing with you some tools that I encounter frequently or use frequently. I'd also like to be able to share with you um, the strengths and weaknesses of those tools. I start out with this slide to highlight um, the element of controversy that this topic brings to our conversation. it's a topic that many of us in geriatrics uh, struggle with. Uh, I think we we see many people who have cognitive impairment. We recognize the burden of unrecognized cognitive impairment. And, and yet our colleagues at the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force reviewed this um, area of interest in 2003 and concluded that the evidence was insufficient to recommend for or against routine screening for um, older adults in primary care settings. Um, I'd ultimately like you to um, be able to reflect on that recommendation and draw your own uh, practice conclusions. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, considered a variety of issues um, that I think are worth highlighting. Um, in this conversation about uh, whether and how to screen for dementia among our older patients. So, these considerations are important. Um, It's important to recognize that there are, in fact, screening tests with very good uh, test operating characteristics, um, at least in terms of sensitivity. Uh, The specificity for these tests is uh, considered by that panel of experts to be only fair. They recognize that there is drug therapy that clearly has been demonstrated to have some beneficial effect on cognitive cognitive function. But they also uh, acknowledge the controversies that exist with the effects of these um, medications on other domains such as uh, function, um, keeping out of nursing homes, etc. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force concluded that there really was insufficient evidence uh, yet to determine whether the benefits observed in drug trials are in fact generalizable to patients whose disease would be detected in a a primary care setting. Um, And they also had um, concerns about um, the accuracy of diagnosis the feasibility of screening and treatment in routine primary care clinical practices, and also the potential harms of screening. They they highlight the lack of information that we have with which to um, direct our practices. Um, Given this information, they essentially concluded that uh, there was not enough information to know whether or not we should be screening for cognitive or or dementia, cognitive problems or dementia in our primary care settings. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force panel was quite clear that the assessment of cognitive function needed to be a part of the evaluation of patients who were suspected of having cognitive impairment or cognitive dysfunction. So although they have concerns about advocating screening um, for dementia, they are quite strong in their recommendation that clinicians should assess cognitive function whenever cognitive impairment or deterioration is, is suspected, um, especially based on direct observation, patient reports or concerns raised by family, friends, or caretakers. What that means for us is, although uh, there remains controversy about um, whether to be screening all of our older patients for dementia or cognitive impairment, it's quite clear that those of us who work with older patients are encountering people at risk for uh, dementia and even experiencing cognitive dysfunction, and we're going to have to have the skill set to be able to um, clarify at the bedside uh, the severity of cognitive dysfunction and even whether or not it's present. When considering whether or not to um, incorporate cognitive screening as part of a a primary care practice for older patients, um, it's useful to think a little bit about uh, the arguments for uh, screening for dementia. And, and to contextualize that, I, I'd like to share the elements of a good screening program and how um, dementia may in fact um, meet the criteria or be a good model for a good screening program. So although we may not have a great deal of evidence base to support it, there may be theoretical reasons that screening for dementia would be um, a um, successful and effective strategy to help identify people who might be having problems with loss of cognition. So what does make for a good screening program? the problem for which you are screening has to be relatively common. So if you're seeing a population of patients over the age of 75, Alzheimer's disease is becoming more and more common. And in fact, many of you know now that Alzheimer's disease in Iowa is the fifth leading cause of death in Iowa. So in populations of people being seen in primary care practices, if there is a heavy proportion of them over the age of 75, it fulfills this criteria for being a common problem. The second criteria for a good screening program would be that there must be tests available that have acceptable sensitivity and specificity, and you you certainly heard my comments uh, reflecting the. U.S. Preventive Services Task Force concern about specificity. But in general, I think there's a general consensus that there are in fact uh, tests available now that have acceptable test operating characteristics. And I've listed them there on your slide. Um, We're going to be reviewing these, many of these, not all, in greater detail. But um, the Mini Mental State Examination, the St. Louis a university Mental Status Examination, the Mini-Cog, the GP-Cog, the um, short portable Mental Status Questionnaire. Those are all tools that have been um, evaluated and validated, and in general have acceptable sensitivity and specificity. So that second criteria is met. There must be efficacious treatment. And now I know I'm. I, I many of you in the audience may not agree with me on this, and I have colleagues who with whom who argue with me on the efficaciousness of the FDA approved treatments, but it is honest to say that there are FDA approved treatments um, available for certainly Alzheimer's disease, the most common cause of dementia. Those of us who work frequently with patients suffering from cognitive loss recognize that there are a variety of non-pharmacologic care interventions. Uh, biologic, psychological, social, that can, in fact, um, help people uh, with um, dementia function more effectively um, outside of the office or outside of the practice um, setting. The fourth criteria would be if treatment is available, treated patients must have better outcomes than untreated patients. Here, Here I think there is Still some debate, and it continues, but it's fair to say that the literature supports some cognitive, behavioral, and social benefits of the therapies we have alluded to. So, um, I think there is growing evidence that um, treated patients can do better than patients who are untreated. And then lastly, the benefits from screening must outweigh the harms. Here I think the main concern, um, at least in both my practice and in the literature, is one of mislabeling, Um, classifying people um, who do not have dementia as demented or vice versa, and the consequences of that kind of mislabeling. Um, I think there are also legitimate issues about uh, cost and time. We're going to talk about the um, strengths and weaknesses of the screening tools that are available to us, but some, one of the um, elements that must be considered is the time involved in implementing a screening program using these tools. So um, there are still controversial issues surrounding the area of um, whether the benefits of screening um, outweigh the harms. To clarify that just a little bit more, um, we've talked a little bit about clinical mislabeling. There are legitimate issues about the complications from additional testing. There's certainly a great deal of anxiety generated surrounding further investigation, uh, neuropsychological testing, um, the anxiety that comes out of poor test performance. There's certainly costs and inconvenience of undergoing the medical evaluation. And certainly those uh, settings in which people um, have false negatives out of a screening process, there'd be the risk of false reassurance. But here as well, there are some potential benefits of screening for dementia. Early education of caregivers, um, preparing um, caregivers and patients for the future, The um, potential for advanced planning for people who, um, for for whom medical attention is brought to their condition and they can start to prepare for the future. There may be some benefit in reducing anxiety and uncertainty and stress for both patients and families. Um, Safety promotion is a high priority in many of our geriatric practices and uh, primary care practices. So being able to provide safety promotion and counseling on driving um, strategies to, to maximize medication adherence and to ensure that there's safety with meal preparation, those would be a potential benefit of recognizing um, unrecognized dementia in the practice. There are medication treatments, the pharmacologic treatments, um, and we've alluded to those the potential to minimize dangerous behaviors in unrecognized dementia. So on the one hand, we can always promote um, safety practices to those we recognize have problems with cognition, and there is the lost opportunities for people who are um, engaging in unsafe behaviors when um, suffering from unrecognized dementia a big element of the potential benefit, uh, perhaps not so much for those of us in routine practices, but the opportunity to participate in some of the research on Alzheimer's disease that highlights the importance of recognizing um, dementia in its earliest stages, a time when um, research interventions might have the greatest potential and then, of course, the issue of early, reverse, early investigation for reversibility. So recognizing that there are, is cognitive loss, identifying reversible illnesses that could be treated before the um, problem with cognition should progress to a point where additional harm should take place. One strategy would be just to do usual care and watch for the telltale signs of dementia, which begs the question, can clinicians actually tell without a systematic formal assessment? And and here in primary care settings, certainly we don't seem to perform very well without formal strategies to identify um, people who are suffering from even moderate to severe dementia. So um, you can find Um, research studies out there that document um, failure rates of 50 to 75 percent. In other words, not identifying or detecting half of the people who are suffering from moderate to severe dementia and being seen in a primary care setting. Um, In milder forms of dementia there are studies that have documented failure rates to detect that that are around 80%. So it does look like those of us who are just relying on our intuition and the routine interactions that take place in our offices are at serious risk for missing um, certainly early dementia and perhaps even more importantly, moderate to severe um, severity dementia. Should you um, choose, as I do, to try to introduce um, screening programs into um, the flow of clinical care for older patients, I think it's reasonable to pursue a strategy of targeting. Um, it would not make sense for most of us who are providing care in general medical practices to necessarily do it on every patient every time, Um, but there are subpopulations in our practices and times of special transition or um, risk where I think the yield is much higher and um, it may be appropriate to um, incorporate screening for dementia into these um, subpopulations and into these Um, clinical encounters. And so I would propose to you that um, picking an age around 75 or 80 in a primary care setting would be a population uh, for whom the prevalence of dementia is substantive and identifying it earlier may have some potential benefit. So targeting those in a primary care practice over the age of 75 and 80 and and to be frank with you, um, that is essentially my geriatric practice. So I have a geriatric practice that's primarily a primary care model and um, for all of the patients who enroll and are seen in that that setting, we actually perform formalized dementia screening that seems to have payback. Other um, populations that might warrant targeting for screening, would be people who are over the age of 65 who suffer from uh, other medical conditions that would put them at higher risk for dementia. And that list you can see there, but just to go through it explicitly, um, a person over the age of 65 who has a history of a cerebrovascular accident, Um, people over the age of 65 who have experienced uh, late onset depression or delirium during times of physical stress. Uh, People who are over 65 and have vascular risk factors that might predispose them to either vascular dementia or mixed dementia syndromes. And of course people over the age of 65 who have a positive family history of dementia. Those would be appropriate um, populations to target with a routine evaluation of cognition structured into the process of primary care. The case finding that really is promoted by U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, I think, would fall into that third category with people for whom changes in activities of daily living, performance, behavior, or cognition would raise your red flags that there is a problem with dementia or uh, cognitive change that would warrant investigation. I advocate for um, performing cognitive um, screening for People over the age of 75 to 80 who are going through institutional transitions, and what I mean by that would be people who are moving into formalized care settings, institutional care settings, people who are transitioning from acute care to long-term care. Uh, Those would be high-yield settings where the recognition of uh, dementia or cognitive loss would have um, substantial payback. And then I think there's a lot of utility to um, performing a uh, screen for cognitive loss or dementia in um, older populations, age 75 or 80 and above, um, who are undergoing preoperative assessments for surgical interventions. Uh, This is a group, again, 25% will have some degree of cognitive loss. They'd be at high risk for perioperative delirium and um, engaging in a routine screening program for cognitive change or dementia would be extremely useful or is extremely useful as part of their flow of perioperative care. So if you're like me and you've come reached the conclusion that there are certainly subgroups and circumstances where a uh, routine or screening assessment for dementia would be of value, then the next, it begs the question, well, how should we do it? And um, I think that these would be um, the characteristics that we would be looking for in an ideal screening tool for dementia. We'd want it to be brief, easy to incorporate into the flow of care without a great deal of time. We'd want it to be a reliable tool, a reliable strategy, getting at the appropriate domains of cognition that would um, um, raise the suspicion for um, dementia. We'd want that uh, tool to have acceptable test operating characteristics in terms of its sensitivity and specificity and um, likelihood ratios we'd want it to be easy. Um, If if it's a very challenging um, procedure to incorporate into practice both in terms of time or complexity it creates barriers to its use. We know that there are short cognitive assessment tools that can address the issue of brevity. We know that there are um, cognitive assessment tools that are pretty sensitive, certainly relatively sensitive, um, in terms of their ability to um, detect changes in cognition. Um, There are some computerized tests that um, could be used for um, screening for dementia, and the more complex level would be that there are tools that are being explored for screening on the telephone. What we're really going to be spending our time on are the shorter cognitive assessment tools that are relatively high sensitivity and uh, use sort of a questionnaire strategy um, to screen. So what's realistically available? I I think when you consider your options it's useful to think in terms of administration time. So there there are a variety of tools that have a a very short administration time and and most of the experts uh, quantify that as uh, can be done in zero to two minutes. Um, There are a group of tools available that have a short administration time, taking about two to five minutes to administer. And then there are a group that take a little bit longer, five to ten minutes. And I've um, uh, organized the a number of the available uh, screening tools in terms of their uh, time of administration just to help you reflect on them. Now the three that I've highlighted in yellow, the clock drawing test, the mini COG, and the mini mental state examination are tests that we're going to discuss together um, in some detail. Um, I've also, I want to I want to drop the name of the General Practitioner Assessment of Cognition or the GPCOG because I think those of you who are out there thinking about this problem and thinking about how to do it most effectively, if you haven't already heard of the GPCOG, are going to hear more about it. And I'm also going to be uh, very briefly touching on the St. Louis University Mental Status Examination or the SLUMS exam, which many people are... Uh, choosing to use as an alternative to the uh, Folstein Mini Mental State Exam. All right, so let's dive in. Um, The first tool, and I would like to sort of promote this as a tool that is um, a reasonable strategy to be utilizing, would be the clock clock drawing. And this particular slide that I have here in front of me, certainly, are the instructions for um, the clock drawing test. Now there are different ways to do this and um, you'll see that in this uh, particular description uh, the first instruction calls for one of two strategies. So you can either have the patient draw the face of the clock on a blank sheet of paper or you can use the strategy which has a standardized clock circle already drawn on the page and ask the patient to draw the face of a clock um, into the circle that you provide to them. Once the patient has put the numbers of the the clock onto the clock face, you would ask uh, him or her to draw the hands of the clock to read a specific time, such as set the hands to 10 minutes after 11. You can repeat these instructions, but no additional instructions should really be given. So, instruct the patient to draw the face of the clock. Once the face of the clock has been drawn, say, set the hands to 10 minutes after 11. Give the patient as much time as needed to complete the task. And as you know from our last couple of slides, um, that particular strategy uh, takes less than two minutes. Now one of the um, problems that I have with the clock draw is um, there are a variety of ways to score the clock draw and um, I think that um, it be because of the variety of um, techniques that can be used to score the clock draw, um, it does become a little bit difficult to communicate to other people um, the severity of the um, abnormality, but I'm offering you here one one scoring strategy for the clock draw. Um, And as I told you there are others, Um, but let's just go through this. So you can see that the clock draw test with this scoring scheme can range from 0 to 6. Okay, And a score less than 4 would be considered to be impaired. And here are the rules. So for three points, the twelve must peer on the top. All right? The second scoring rule would be that twelve numbers must be present within the circle, and that would give um, a person one point. There must be two distinguishable hands giving one point. And the time must be identified correctly, giving one point. And on this slide, there are two examples. um, On A there, you can see that the 12 appears at the top. All 12 numbers are are present on the face of the clock. Um, We don't know uh, where the clock hands were set, but presumably that's an incorrect time. And um, you can see that there are two distinguishable hands. So they lose a point for time must be identified correctly, giving this um, particular clock score uh, one point. I mean, excuse me, five points, making it a a normal clock draw. To the side there, you see a clock which scores one point. The 12 does not appear at the top. There are not 12 numbers present, so you lose four points there. There are two distinguishable hands, which gives the clock one point, and the time is incorrect, so you lose a point there, giving this particular clock a score of one. Now there are some really nice things about the clock draw. It's simple, it's quick, it's easy to administer. I actually do find in my own Um, general medical practice that it does seem to be less threatening to the patient and um, can be used and incorporated very, very easily into the flow of care. It's relatively sensitive to Alzheimer's disease, which, as you know, would be the most common cause of dementia in our practices. And um, it's really most useful as a screen or as an adjunct to another test. And we'll we'll talk about the mini-cog um, and the GPCOG, both of which incorporate clock drawing into those assessment tools. Problems as I see it with the clock draw, uh, I am confused by the scoring systems. There are a number of them out there. Different colleagues use different ones, so there are um, a number of them. I, I think that an individual using um, the clock draw strategy should, should get too bent out of shape over the various uh, ways to score it, but if you're communicating to other people, um, it can be a, a challenge. It's a little less sensitive to vascular dementia than it is to Alzheimer's disease, and it's, in my view, a little bit difficult to use the clock draw to grade severity, establish a baseline of cognition, or monitor progress as uh, the tools that, that come up with a a score such as the um, mini mental state exam or the um, St. Louis University mental status exam. So uh, that completes just uh, talking about one of the very short tools that you can use, administration time tools that you can use, um, screening for dementia. And then now I'd like to spend some time talking about Uh, one of the short administration time tools, uh, the MINICOG. Now the MINICOG is a a pretty nice strategy because it's a relatively short and brief test. Um, It involves two um, very uh, sensitive um, um, strategies and and the first is to um, recall three words and the second is to use the clock draw. So by combining these two strategies, you develop a process of screening that's actually relatively brief and quite um, effective. So here are the instructions on how to perform the mini-COG. So the first would be to instruct the patient to listen carefully to, repeat back to you, and remember now and later three unrelated words. Your second step after instructing the patient in this way would be to draw the face of a clock. So instruct the patient to draw the face of a clock. Again, either on a blank sheet of paper or on a sheet with the clock circle already drawn on the page. After the patient puts the numbers on the clock face, ask him or her to draw the hands of the clock to read a specific time. Uh, Most commonly used is 11.10 or 8.20, and these do seem to be more sensitive times than some other times that could be used. You can repeat these instructions, but no additional instructions should be given. And if the patient cannot complete the clock clock draw in three minutes or less, you move on to the next step, which is step five, to ask the patient to repeat the three previously presented words. So give them three words to remember, have them draw the clock, set the hands at 1110, and then ask them to repeat the three previously presented words. Fairly simple. There's a straightforward scoring system that you can communicate easily with uh, colleagues. Um, so you give one point for each recalled word after the clock draw, you give two points for a normal clock drawing, and you give zero points for an abnormal clock drawing. How do you decide if the clock is normal or not? Well, if, the, if all of the numbers are depicted, one each in the correct sequence and position, and the hands play display the requested time, it is a normal clock. And if it doesn't fulfill those criteria, it would be characterized as an abnormal clock and the patient would get zero points. An equal hand length is not considered to be an error. Add the scores together and you come up with a total score for the MINI COG which uh, 0 to 2 points would be a positive screen for dementia, and 3 to 5 points would be a negative screen for dementia. So very nice screening tool. Um, you can get a lot more information about the MiniCog um, at the American Geriatric Society website. Um, I have included the link there, and uh, what that actually takes you to is a... Um, some materials about dementia, which includes instruction on the Minicog screen for dementia. Um, So I uh, strongly encourage those of you who want to um, become more expert at using the Minicog, might want to incorporate it into your practice um, to explore that website um, and uh, spend some time looking carefully at the the uh, mini-cog. I myself uh, have incorporated the mini-cog into my general medical practice um, primarily as a case-finding tool um, but for a nice easy strategy that can be uh, built into the flow of care um, in a primary care setting. Just to um, summarize the mini-cog, It can be completed in under three minutes. Uh, It's relatively free of language and culture biases. You can see there that the sensitivity and specificity, so the test operating characteristics are quite good. Um, But it's also um, more difficult to use as a tool to stratify severity or communicate severity of cognitive loss. Um, And realistically, if you uh, screen positive for dementia, clarifying severity is going to require some additional next steps. I don't think one can, in good conscience, uh, discuss screening for dementia without spending some time talking about the Fulstein Mini Mental State Exam. I, I, I believe that this remains the gold standard tool for Um, Bedside assessment of cognition and much of the work um, trying to understand the role of screening for dementia has used the Fulstein Mini Mental State Exam. It's a um, 30-point test or questionnaire with 19 items that assess orientation to place and time, attention, concentration, word recall, language, and visual construction. Um, The scoring is such that a score of less than 24 would be suggestive of dementia. And if you use that criterion as less than 24 positive, over 24 negative, it has a sensitivity somewhere between 78 and 90 percent and specificity of 70 to 80 percent, 87 percent, excuse me. Um, Many of my colleagues argue that the mini mental state exam is... um, not um, sufficiently sensitive for people with mild cognitive impairment, and um, I think in some settings that that may be of some relevance. Um, the other nice or one of the nice features of the mini mental state exam is that it can also be used to uh, stratify severity. So um, you can see here on this particular table, the mini mental state score can be Um, used to give a sense of um, correlating cognitive function in patients who are suffering from progressive um, um, cognitive loss due to illnesses like Alzheimer's disease. So a score of 26 to 30 in someone who is experiencing or complaining about memory loss but has no clear objective signs of memory impairment, um, no, Excuse me, but has no functional impairment from their memory changes, but does have some objective signs, would be characterized as someone who has mild cognitive impairment. Once you go through that uh, 24 stratification, um, you uh, move into the people who have mild um, um, dementia, and then as things become more severe, the numbers become lower and you can use it to stratify for moderate severity and and then severe um, illness. So one of the nice features of the full steam mini mental state exam is um, I think you can efficiently communicate a lot of information about disease severity in patients who have dementia um, using the Mini-Mental State Exam. So if it were to be used as a screening strategy, it not only would um, identify cognitive loss, but then immediately be able to give some sense of its severity and communicate that to others. So what's good about the Mini-Mental State Exam? It's widely used and recognized, um, which I think personally enhances communication. when, When someone calls me up and says, I um, want you to see a patient, their mini mental state exam is 18, um, that, that effectively communicates a great deal of information. It's easy to use. I think the scoring is pretty straightforward and understood. Um, it's useful as a screen, takes a little bit longer to apply as a screen, so it's a little more burdensome in a busy primary care practice, which has been one of the criticisms of it. Um, It can be used to establish a baseline for people who've been identified through a screening program to have some cognitive loss, and it can also be used to monitor progress. Weaknesses, we've already talked about the time it takes to complete it. Uh, We've discussed to some extent the insensitivity to subtle cognitive impairment, and there um, has been some work that Uh, shows that it is influenced by education and cultural background. You can actually find um, standards that stratify based on education and cultural background. Um, But the uh, cutoff for 24 between being normal and abnormal um, has some problems when stratified across education and culture. And then it's been found to be less sensitive to dementia that does not have Um, cortical features, so subcortical dementia, um, it would be a little less sensitive for them. I want to mention two other tools that are available. Um, You see more and more of them in the literature. Um, You probably are aware that the Folstein Mini Mental State Exam is a proprietary product um, with uh, subject to copyright And as such, there's a barrier to its use more than there was in my formative years. Um, There there are a couple of other tools that are similar to the mini mental state exam that one could consider as alternatives. And I believe that uh, part of your handout includes... Um, access to the St. Louis University Mental Status Exam or the SLUMS test, and the general practitioner um, cognitive screen, which is the GP COG. So SLUMS is felt to be a little more sensitive than the Mini Mental State exam to mild cognitive impairment. When you, when you look at the slums, you'll see it's very it's structured very much like the mini mental state exam and has a a score of 30 points, and in most uh, forms you'll find that it uh, gives the, um, strat- the the stratification of probabilities and severities um, at the bottom. It does take seven minutes to complete, very similar in that way to the Folstein Mini Mental State Exam. Um, it has been score adjusted for education level, which is nice. You can easily get it. You can just honest to goodness you can just google slums and cognition and come up very easily with with a um, copy of the tool that you can just print off and use in your own practice or your care setting the GP cog um, comes out of either Australia or New Zealand um, so it you'll, you'll find most much of the literature um, surrounding the GP cog is in Um, literature from the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand, Um, and it combines cognitive and informant data. So there are two parts to this tool. One would be sort of asking the patient the questions for the cognitive assessment, and then there's a second part which is asking a caregiver or an informant um, to rate some items. Um, if you look at the test operating characteristics, it performs very similar to a mini mental state examination. It's probably a little bit faster to complete, um, but to do it in fall, it requires an informant. And although more recent literature has said that it's been um, validated in a variety of socioeconomic uh, uh, strata, um, I, 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 it, it does come out of... Um, well, I think there's more recent literature that says that there there are fewer problems than earlier worries uh regarding how people of different socioeconomic backgrounds might perform on the test, so I think as it gets out more um the the evidence is becoming stronger that it's a very robust test across cultural background and educational background. so remember that the slums and the g p cog um, they're a part of your handout. Take a look at them. Um, consider whether they might be a tool you'd like to consider using. If you want more information about the GPCog, there's a, a great website. Um, it'll walk you through a online version of the test. You can also download information, um, or not not information, but the actual paper copy of the test itself. So. If you want to explore the GPCOG as a potential screening tool, um, this website is very helpful. Which uh, brings us towards the end of our presentation. Um, So just to summarize um, this whole topic of screening for dementia. So although there is not medical consensus that um, screening all older people Um, in a primary care setting um, is something we should be doing. I think there is clearly a growing argument for screening people certainly over the age of 75 for problems with cognition. There is consensus that people whom you suspect of having cognitive problems should undergo assessment. So even if you aren't at a point where you feel that uh, routine screening for all older patients, needs to be done in your own practice. Um, It's pretty clear that um, it would be valuable to master these bedside tools and have them available for you to evaluate people for whom you are suspecting problems with cognitive impairment. There are a number of tools that have been standardized, validated, and available for use for the assessment of cognition and can be easily incorporated into um, the bedside clinical um, activities. The mini-cog is acceptably quick to administer. It has good test operating characteristics as a screen and for uh, people who want to be um, building a Um, screening strategy into their practice with older patients, the MINI COG is a a, a strategy that seems to work well for a number of clinicians across the country. The MINI mental state exam remains, in my view, the historical standard, um, but it does take longer to administer than the MINI COG and may be a little less sensitive to mild cognitive changes. There are other tools that are becoming available. Um, Consider the St. Louis University Mental Status Exam and the GPCOG tool as alternates for uh, the mini mental state examination. That completes our presentation for uh, this March geriatric lecture series um, discussing with you Issues surrounding screening for dementia, whether we should be doing it, arguments to do it, arguments against, um, tools you can use to um, perform screening for dementia in your practice, and how to interpret those tools. Thank you.